This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 58 of Here's How. Never again was what we heard after the collapse of 2008. No more financial crashes, no more housing bubbles, no more running the economy just to pump up capital values. Let's take a look at how that's going. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. I don't like to complain about things. Actually, that's not true. I do complain about things a lot, but generally I like to at least have some semblance of being constructive rather than just saying everything is terrible and there's nothing we can do about it. But with Ireland and Brexit, it's terrible and there's almost nothing we can do about it. Brexit is terrible and it's terrible in lots of detailed and different ways. But let me start by saying what might be right about it. Even if the Brexiteers are wrong about Brexit not harming the British economy, and they are wrong, even if the Brexiteers are wrong about being freed from oppressive EU regulations so that they will now be free to put stuffing in their sofas that will kill them with toxic fumes in a house fire, they will now be free to allow their mobile phone companies to massively overcharge them for checking Facebook when they go on holiday, They'll be free to allow their employers to bully them into working over long hours in dangerous conditions. Even if they're wrong about all of that, and they are wrong, there still might be a case to be made that Brexit was the right thing to do. If you were certain that Brexit would leave every single British person poorer, you could still make an argument that it's the right thing to do in principle. I don't happen to believe that argument, but it's a valid argument to make. In 1941, for example, the United States could have stayed out of the war in Europe, and at that point you could have argued that entering the war would have been an enormous and avoidable cost. Many in the US actually did make that argument, and it's not clear now, and it certainly wasn't clear then, that they were wrong in fact. But they were wrong in principle money wasn't the only consideration. And, equally, someone who highly values their view of British sovereignty could say that leaving the EU is the right thing to do regardless of the cost. But they're not making that argument. If you listen to the rhetoric from the arch-Brexiteers, and we had Tory MP Peter Lilly on this podcast a few episodes back, but even if you listen to the ones in the UK cabinet, like Liam Fox and David Davis in particular, they're making a straight-up economic argument. They're saying that Britain will be richer for leaving the EU. I happen to think that that's bonkers. Now, I don't count because I don't have a vote in the UK. But there are millions of people who do have a vote in the UK who seem to believe them. And they have trusted them with their economic future. People like car workers in the northeast of England who rely on free trade exports. People like farmers who rely on EU subsidies and whose exports will be hit with 40% tariffs if Britain crashes out of the EU into WTO rules without a free trade agreement. 
people who don't want their country rent asunder if the chaos propels Scotland towards independence. And that chaos is a worry for Ireland because our economy is so closely linked with the UK. Put it bluntly, if Liam Fox and David Davis are wrong, or make the wrong decisions in the Brexit negotiations, it's serious for Ireland. Now, maybe they have a very clever and detailed plan up their sleeves. Maybe they have it all thought out, they have a clear strategy that they're not telling us about, and maybe we will see a very smooth transition. Or maybe not. So what are the signs so far? Brexit was triggered last week. We've had years of boasts from UKIP and the hardline wing of the Conservative Party about how the continental European governments would be just queuing up to give the UK whatever they want and ask nothing in return, and how countries like India and China would for some reason want to do preferential trade deals with Britain rather than a trading bloc that is ten times larger. Well, good luck with that. Trade deals normally take many years, sometimes decades, to negotiate. That's not surprising, they're very complex. Countries have hundreds of interlocking vested interests. Some of those interests have to be sacrificed in favour of others, and when everybody is being very careful in negotiations to make sure that they don't come out worse off, that generates a finely tuned stalemate so these deals tend to be exquisitely balanced with huge amounts of detail. It literally takes thousands of civil servants decades to do these deals. Now, it might be possible to get a quick deal by simply giving the other side everything they want, but that hardly sounds like a good idea. If Britain is to negotiate many of these deals at once, that's going to take a spectacular level of work from their civil service, It's not at all clear that the civil servants have the staff or resources or the politicians have the attention span to do that. And remember that they're negotiating the exit from the EU at the same time. They've set up an entire new government department to do that. And they can't just go down the local job centre and put up an ad for a few thousand experienced international negotiators. One thing that people with little experience in business, and I guess the same goes in politics, one thing that you learn very quickly in business is that renegotiation is almost never a good idea. There'll always be some naive Egypt who thinks that they got a bad deal and they can get a better one by demanding a renegotiation. And they have always made the same mistake. They think that renegotiation means what I have, I hold what you have is up for grabs. For some reason, they never seem to realise the obvious, that it's just as likely that the renegotiation will give them a worse deal as a better one. The results of any negotiations tend to reflect the relative power of the parties. Unless there's a major shift in that power, renegotiation really isn't going to change anything. Quite likely, a naive renegotiator will annoy their counterparties into taking a more hostile position and end up worse off. And then there was Gibraltar. The Spanish obviously resent this tiny British colony, and they got a mention written into the EU negotiating brief that they would have a veto over its post-Brexit relationship with the EU. 
or perhaps Brussels encouraged them to seek that specific mention. In reality, it's nothing special. All EU countries have a veto on the entire outcome, but the fact that this was specifically mentioned was enough of a red flag to send the British into a tailspin. The British tabloids went into overdrive. Statements were made in high dudgeon. Michael Howard, the former Conservative Party leader, came on Sky News ranting about how Margaret Thatcher sent a fleet to eject the Argentinians from the Falkland Islands. Just one single line in a briefing document that stated the bleeding obvious, and Brussels had every swivel-eyed retired major in the home counties fulminating. It seems that they are even easier to trigger than Donald Trump. It was a signal that the Brexiteers won't be getting everything their own way. It was an easy, simple, obvious ploy. It cost Brussels nothing at all. And it cost the British attention and mental bandwidth that they just don't have to spare. Britain normally punches way above its weight in international affairs. In the coming two years, they're going to really need that skill set. So far, it doesn't look like they're putting it to good use. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. On a Skype line now, I have Tony Groves. He's a financial consultant. He's also the writer of the website trickstersworld.com, and he writes for broadsheet.ie as well. Um, Tony, you wrote in a recent column, um, how can it be that it's not profitable enough for builders to build houses, but still the price of houses are going through the roof and are very unaffordable? Can you answer that question? Well, I can answer the question, and it, but it's it really needs to be broken down into its parts. In terms of uh, there are there are problems around the actual land, the land banks, and they're um, making land uh, making it viable. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that is actually being tackled with the policies to to implement new strategies and actually tackling the that's like pre- pre- um, making services available things like that yeah it's 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 about getting things on the grid making infrastructure uh, challenges but that in itself isn't actually making unproductive land bringing it on bringing it into stock quickly enough and the real reason for that is is that the uh, any tax on unproductive land has been put off for another couple of years and like it's it's due to kick in in 2019 but not payable till 2020 and so if you've no incentive to actually uh, make the land productive, why would you if you can continue to, to, to sit on land banks? So, so when you say you here, you talk about major developers, people who have big land banks around Dublin and the ur- other urban areas. Well, as I said, there's over 60 hectares in Dublin alone that's been identified as, as unproductive land. and that's 60 know. hectares for somebody who, who's not so good at maths. How many houses would that work out to be? Well, well, if you can, if you can factor in... I, I think the estimates were somewhere around the region of 27,000. I'm only going off uh, off an, an estimate, but we were looking at, you know, uh, again, you're going to you got to you have to take that in, factor that into the planning permission problem phases, and then 
what what height you restrictions Dublin has because that's another thing that does need to be tackled and um, you know not being able to able to go above three or four stories depending on where how close the proximity to the city centre and the likes of the mm-hmm. likes of that but but you're you're looking at uh, you're looking at a substantial uh, requirement at least one year uh, of what would be needed if you think typically we should be probably building about twenty four thousand units per year. Mm-hmm. So, so to ask a question that goes directly to the heart of the matter, when builders say it's not worth building houses because there's no profit in it, are they telling the truth or are they lying and just hoping that they will make more profit later? Well, I mean, everybody wants to make more profit. Um, I think there's there's an understanding that uh, there's there there is actually profits to be made from from. Uh, from building as it stands currently, but we're not talking 2007, 2006 levels of profits. We're we're talking more, perhaps more mo- more modest profits, um, and they are kind of saying, well, we're getting very close to the tipping point where we went to the severely unaffordable uh, structure that we had. In- you, you you mentioned this scale in your article of of how different things are judged to be affordable and unaffordable. This is an international scale. Where mm. does Ireland show up on the the, on the scale, well, we're not. We're, well, I'd say I'd say we're very, very close to tipping into the severely unaffordable as we stand. So we, we were, uh, as of January, we were we were literally 0.3 of a percent uh, away from um, where we were at the top of the Celtic Tiger. And how that how that is basically uh, calculated is they take the industrial wage and divide it by the cost of a, cost of, uh, of a house mm-hmm. and uh, it, depending upon the multiple of that you'll know where you fit on the on the scale and sadly, and, and we're right at the top of the scale um yeah we're we're, we're below people of some parts of London and and, uh, and and your San Francisco's and a couple of these sort of uh, places where Silicon Valley heads want to spend mad money to get just to just to live close to Silicon Valley so we're really mm-hmm. in that company now um, and we don't really belong there we don't. And Ireland, I mean, if you look at, for example, population density, Ireland has by a mile the lowest population density, certainly of the EU15 and of most of the Eastern European countries as well. Hmm. Well, that, like, there's no, there's no question that we haven't tackled any of the, any of the opportunities that are there in terms of the, the well, spread, spreading out the population growth, creating new population centres, you know, making Cork, Limerick into an actual, uh, a, a, a ballast or a counterbalance to Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, those things, I know there's plans now in place for 2020 and all of these things, but, but, but like if I can drive from Dublin to Limerick quicker than someone from Cork can drive to Limerick, well, we're, we're a long way from, from actually making that as, as an attractive alternative to, to everything being Dublin centric. Yeah. There's, there's one, um, uh, saying that I normally go by, which is to say never ascribe to malice what can adequately be explained by stupidity. In other words, don't believe in conspiracy theories. People are generally mm. just, you know, if things go wrong, it's because people are fools rather than evil. Yeah. Is that still credible? Do you really think that the government is so stupid that in the thinnest populated country in the EU 15, we have some of the most unaffordable housing, you know, in the company, as you said, of like yeah. incredibly densely populated areas like the southeast of England? Well, clearly, um, I think it's a it's a it's a combination. I don't I, I agree with you on the the lack of malice. I think there's an ideological problem 
wherein we're tackling this um, from the from the perspective of let the market solve it and then we go and tinker in the market and you know self-professed free market people are tinkering in the market to actually make it more profitable as opposed to let the market find its uh, find its value so so they're actually going against what they're talking about and they're not uh, they're they're working on the um, demand side and they're not working on the supply side so um, if you're not going to work on the supply side you're not going to have proper uh, infrastructure planning and you're not going to actually develop population centers. So I don't think that that's uh, necessarily a uh, malicious thing. I, I do think it's ideologically driven and I do think that um, in the in the bubble of um, developers, banks and, uh, and politicians that there's a, a convenience of groupthink there that says this is the sure this is how we've always done things and you know <laughs> maybe the cure for our ills is to do more of what we did the last time but maybe <laughs> rather than actually try something different. Uh, speaking of ideological differences when John Gormley was the environment minister in the Fianna Fáil Green Party coalition mm. they um, increased the standards for building particularly apartments and uh, a certain percentage of apartments had to have dual aspect and there was an increased minimum size. Builders complained bitterly about this. They said they didn't want to go to the expense of building essentially apartments that somebody would mm. live their life in and, and uh, they thought it would be cheaper to build the sort of apartments that you might rent to students uh, um, for a year or two. Alan Kelly, uh, in yeah. the Labour Party Fine Gael coalition that followed that, scrapped those requirements. And the, that was much to the delight of the builders. Bec- and they said, they promised like, that this would reduce costs, again. that, well, that this would reduce costs and make housing more affordable. Looking at it from, you know, you're a financial expert, looking at it from that point of view, who was right? Well, realistically, again, from a, from a profit point of view, um it's it's uh, alan kelly alan kelly was 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 right in terms of uh, making it more profitable but in terms of you know do we it goes back to the old conversation do we do we live in the economy or do we live in a society so if you wanted to build an actual place where people wanted to live um he was clearly he's clearly wrong and you yeah, know, but, but just, did he have did he have a point in that uh, yeah of course we have to live in a society and live in the built environment rather than live in, in an economy but were lesser apartments better than no apartments and did that did that work did it increase the supply do you think no it's 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 not really a case of it, it, i don't think i don't think it was a case of either or i think it was a case of um of of actually coming to coming to the market and saying uh, no, these are the criteria we have. We actually have firm regulation, and and the regulation that that actually matters, um, and, and and reaching an accord because there because there are profits to be made in in those in those uh, in those constructions. But if you look around Dublin city centre, we are getting more of those bloody uh, as you, as you put it, the student ones that are going up around Dorset Street and uh, Gardner Street now, and they're all you know they're aimed at the the rental market and then you look mm-hmm. at the other apartments that are going up that are being purchased by REIT funds that are you know own tranches blocks of apartments in 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 uh, in developments and you know so that all sounds wonderful in, in theory that these are getting these apartments that were sitting kind of idle or half finished or unfinished are getting are getting completed and they're you know they're becoming um 
to come into the market to increase the for for renters. But their 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 landlord could be a pension fund in California. Is there anything <laughs> wrong with that? Um, potentially, is, yeah. Is it better than kind of a local guard who kind of bangs on the door as as uh, you know on a Friday evening to collect the rent? Isn't it better to have more professional landlords? It would be better to have professional landlords in a in a more dispersed uh, market, not in such a dense area. Um, there's developments in in Dublin Nine that mm-hmm. are owned nearly entirely by by two funds. Now, if 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 the money decides that it's going to China tomorrow, um, uh, how how are we exposed on 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 one development where you have then potentially 127 units hitting hitting the market? Um, are we back to are we back to square one where all of a sudden uh, anybody who actually has a private held uh, apartment in 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 a certain development is, is then actually hammered? And we're back into the into the. But but hang hang on a second here. Should should the policy uh, be focused on getting people uh, affordable housing, or should it be focused on um, guaranteeing the investments of of uh, people who who uh, are essentially speculating? Well, if, from my from my mind, the policy should should purely be. Um, step one would have been around the the rent certainty that that they looked at they were doing that correctly, giving a security of tenure around tenants' rights and then increasing, um, and then actually reducing the security and tenure as as more properties come to the market. So you know, because what we're we're playing with a rigged system here at the moment, whereby mm-hmm. um, you've you you have a, you have the resources are, are held up in 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 large uh, large volume trades, where whereby you know someone is a is a giant land landlord, um, and they they are more or less in control of of what of what the market has to do, as opposed to well, look, we have we we'll. We'll come. We'll come and say, right. We've limited it to four percent growth, and we want a five-year, um, t- uh, five-year tenancy agreement. But we're actually going to give you. Uh, we'll we'll give you on the other side guarantee your returns, and and we'll give you and we'll actually increase those as we actually go from producing seventeen thousand houses up to twenty-four thousand houses. I mean, it's a lack of ambition. Of to say, I think it was only yesterday. Simon Coveney said uh, he's hoping something like uh, seventy thousand houses over the next ten years. I mean, this you know, is seventy thousand in total, or for social housing? No, he he said. Oh, he's not talking about social housing. He's he's talking very little social housing. He's, he's so, talking so, about so that's a total of seven thousand houses a year. That's that's not even remotely adequate. No, it's not close to um, it's not close to where we need to be. And even if it even if it uh, even if it was this, that's based on his improvements to infrastructure. He's saying that that, that that's what that will free uh, up. Now. So, so the infrastructure improvements alone will add seven thousand a year for ten years. Yes, he that's his that's his ambition. Um, but I think it's I think it's far too uh, short sighted because it doesn't include um, a, a proper social housing commitment. You know, there's no there's no places like uh, Cabra and Finglas and these places, these corporation developments that are, that that became communities and established themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we we did all that when we were supposed to be broke, mm-hmm. and and now we you know today we, we're we're we've more people back at work than ever before. You know, we, we're we're down to those levels, and we've more tax coming in than ever before, and yet we can't uh, we can't even 
produced the bloody rapid build houses that were supposed to go up in Ballymun all came in overpriced and would have been cheaper to buy um, the 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 units that they sold in Charlestown, for example, that went for a song. Mm-hmm. You um, obviously are very critical of successive uh, ministers on this and successive government policies. Um, if I was to wave a magic wand in the morning and uh, make you the minister in charge, what would your first three policies be? My first three policies would well initially I would I would I would I would start I would I would start with the tax of unproductive land to bring more land to the and I wouldn't be deferring it for another couple of years. So, so people so, who are sitting on empty sites basically they don't need the cash and they're getting huge capital appreciation they would see that there is also a disadvantage as well as an advantage to sitting around doing I, nothing. I I, dis- I disincentivize the the land that's not actually it's not productive you know it ha- that's that that is the that is the central flaw of all our policies because you know oh, okay uh, so a tax a tax on unproductive land next a social housing policy whereby we'll we'll actually commit to building a social housing um the developments not not exclusively but we could we could certainly look at um you know what worked in the past, and 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 then looking across the globe for what are the best kind of uh, social mixed use houses housing policies that did it, and we would go. That would be my. That would be if you could do those two things alone. Mm-hmm. You'd you'd bring you like we don't have a, a, we don't have a, a deficit of land. We don't have a, we don't have it. We're not overpopulated. Mm-hmm. So those two things alone could get real impact fairly quickly. Okay. Well, you've given me two, and there are two pretty big ones. Um, Tony Groves, financial consultant and also um, author of trickstersworld.com. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Make your view heard. Dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. That's almost the end of episode 58 of Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, published on the 5th of March 2017. I have a link to Tony's blog and the article we were discussing in the show notes for this episode on the website. If you can think of a topic that should be covered in a future show, or if you want to suggest someone to include, that could be yourself, then let me know. If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and give it a rating or even write a nice review. Also, please like the show on Facebook, follow the podcast on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, follow Tony at Trickster's World, and subscribe to the podcast so new shows automatically come up in your podcast feed. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast app or software. If you don't know how to do that, there's full instructions, recommendations for free podcast software, and contact details for the show, all at www.hereshow.ie. The next show will be uploaded shortly. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.